0: Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly.
1: In this episode, as France prepares to vote in presidential elections in April, we ask two experts, how has Emmanuel Macron changed France?
2: The greatest change that has occurred during Macron's presidency is um, the polarization of the French political system.
0: And later in the show, the history of humanity's love of bees. I talked to an expert about how human civilizations have expressed their appreciation for our buzzing friends for thousands of years. It's not just a
3: current thing. People have had a long relationship with bees for a long time.
1: I'm Dan Marino in San Francisco. And I'm Gemma Ware in London. You're listening to The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. Dan, I am excited. For the first time ever, I'm going to be able to vote in the French election.
0: Well, congratulations, but how?
1: Well, I got French citizenship through marriage last year. I'd actually learnt the Marseillaise for the occasion, the French national anthem, in my readiness for a citizenship ceremony. But in the end, I didn't actually have one because of the
0: pandemic. Ah, shame given all the French history and pride there.
1: I might be able to hum it as I stand in line waiting to vote in the presidential elections. And I'll be doing that in front of the French embassy here in London on April the 10th, which is the first of two rounds of voting. And we're joined by somebody else who will also be voting in April, uh, Claire Chakravati, who's the politics editor for The Conversation based in Paris. Bonjour, Claire. Bonjour. Hey,
0: Claire. So where will you be on election day?
4: Well, then I'll be at home in Paris, uh,
1: very, uh, very close to the poll office. Claire, one thing I love about the French election is just how quickly the results are actually announced. In the US or in the UK, you can wait all night to find out who's won. But that's not what happens in France, right?
4: Yes, uh, indeed.
1: In France, we usually get the results just a little after 8pm, just when the polls close. I think this is great. It's like a televised event. Everyone turns on at the same time and they know who's won. Everyone
0: should do it. (laughs) It would be certainly nice in the United States. So, Cleo, what happened in 2017?
4: Well, in 2017, what happened was, surprisingly, a candidate that came from nowhere, Emmanuel Macron, was elected, uh, beating the far right, Marine Le Pen, from the far right in France. So he actually won the election. That was a bit of a surprise. Macron was in government before. He had a bit of political um, support. But he was basically unknown to French people. He created a party en marche and he marked a huge um, change in French politics, to be fair. And what happened on the night that he won? Well, it was quite a show, the way he staged uh, his victory. You have this young man uh, who is not even 40 years old and he's walking by himself uh, at the Louvre on this very powerful, somber music. Uh, and that was quite an impression he made. I'm sure he wanted maybe to show that he was, although he was young, he was also very grave and serious. But I think that was a bit of a, that kind of a show off also marked the way he was going to lead his presidency with a lot of PR skills uh, and a certain style that not everyone
0: appreciates. And Macron is up for re-election again this year, correct?
4: Yeah, he is indeed. Uh, He's standing for another quinquennat, as we say in French, which is a second five-year term. And how is he doing in the polls? The polls suggest that he might win the election very easily, whoever his opponent in the second round is. One reason for that is the fact that uh, quite a few candidates, but none are that strong. We also had a very long crisis with the pandemic and social unrest in France. But another reason is perhaps also the Ukrainian war, which changed everything, uh, made the the electoral campaign kind of numb
1: so far. Well, thank you, Claire, for coming on to explain that. And good luck in your coverage as you continue to cover it in the next few weeks. Thank you so much, Gemma. Thank you, Dan. So for this episode, we wanted to find out how the French political landscape has shifted in the five years since Emmanuel Macron celebrated his victory at the Louvre in 2017. And to do this, I've been speaking to a couple of academics. OK. Bonjour, Gilles. Thank you very much for coming on The Conversation Weekly. First of all, can you please introduce yourself, tell us who you are, what you do and where you're based?
2: Yes, of course. So my name is uh, Gilles Ivaldi. Um, I'm a researcher in politics and I'm based at Cevipof, uh, which is the uh, one of the leading centres on French elections and parties in France. Uh, and we're based in Paris at Sciences Po. And my uh, research interests are mostly with uh, populism, the radical right, and of course, French elections.
1: Excellent. And that's what we're here to talk to you about today with the election just a couple of weeks away. First of all, can I just get a general assessment from you to this question we're trying to answer in this episode, which is, has Emmanuel Macron changed the French political system? And if you think he has, how has he done so?
2: Yeah, he sure has. Um, in my opinion, the, uh, the greatest change uh, that has occurred uh, during Macron's presidency is uh, the polarisation of the French political system. Uh, Emmanuel Macron has taken the centre ground of French politics. He's created this party that has brought together the centre-left and the centre-right. And because of that, he's uh, weakened all uh, previously dominant parties of the left and right, and therefore is open a space for more radical parties. So now, um, after uh, nearly five years, we have this uh, French party system which has a strong party at the centre, that's La République en Marche, Macron's uh, own party, and we have very strong radical or extremist parties both to the left and right of French politics.
1: Some might say that that polarisation was already there, that there was already the the far left and the far right in France. So tell me a bit more about that. How has Macron's entry into the French political system expanded that polarisation?
2: Well, I think it has expanded because before Macron, we still had two um, very powerful, very strong parties uh, on the left and right, the Socialist Party on the left and the um, uh, Republicans on the right. And these were uh, moderate parties. So they, they would push moderate policies and they would uh, keep voters uh, close to the center. Now that those two parties have become uh, very weak, what well, we see is that the space has been taken over by more radical parties. And in that sense, those parties, they have more radical, more extremist policies. So in that sense, ideological polarization has increased because the political actors have changed. The ones dominant parties have almost disappeared and they've been replaced by more radical parties.
1: And is your research with the French electorate reflecting that? Are people gravitating towards that polarisation as a result?
2: Something we see very clearly in our surveys is that more people now um, are placing themselves to the right of French politics. So in that sense, the polarisation I'm talking about is asymmetrical. It has uh, happened more to the right of the French party system than to the left of it.
1: So some would say that Macron himself has shifted France to the right. Is that something you would agree with? Um,
2: well, yes, I think uh, Macron has shifted French politics to the right. And, uh, and this was a, a twofold process in a sense. Uh, first, it is very clear that Macron himself has moved to the right during the presidency. And it's done so on different issues like uh, immigration or crime. And we've we seen this shift to the right. And as a consequence, I would say that the Republicans, the mainstream right, uh, got under pressure between Macron and the far right. And therefore, they had to shift to the right themselves. And what we've seen is this process of the conservative right becoming a, a lot tougher on immigration and crime and we've seen that during the, the primary election uh, for the, the conservative right, which was very much to the right. And now if I look at Valérie Pécresse, who's the uh, candidate for the Republicans in this election, if I look at a uh, manifesto It is very much to the right on immigration, on crime. Another important thing is that that shift has not taken place on all issues. It's mostly on cultural issues. It's mostly on immigration, crime, Islam. These are the key issues where we can see uh, such a shift to the right. It's much less um, perceptible on socioeconomic issues. The French have not become more right-wing on economic issues. Actually, I think during the pandemic, they've become more left-wing They want more social protection, they want more hospitals, more health, uh, more care.
1: And was the shift to the right happening anyway, or has Macron exacerbated it
2: again this is a long term trend in french politics i think the shift to the right has started uh, back in the 80s when the far right emerged on the french political uh, scene with the rise and success of the of the front national back then and from uh, the mid 80s onwards we've seen this sort of radicalization of the conservative right uh, taking over uh, immigration and criminality issues and uh, somehow accommodating the the far-right agenda. So you're right in that sense, it's not new to French politics. But then again, because of this uh, displacement of the centre of gravity of the right under Macron's presidency, this has been exacerbated.
1: Okay. Can you still say that there is a left and a right in France? Or has it all come together to the right?
2: No, um, there still is a left and right in France. Um, What we see in France, I think um, maybe two points. The first one is that the, the meaning of left and right have changed over time. Uh, maybe 40, 50 years ago, uh, left and right were very much defined in uh, socio economic terms. It was the market versus the state, you know, uh, liberal policies versus more redistribution and social justice. Um, I would say now that left and right are primarily defined in cultural terms. And when we think now about uh, left and right in France, like in many other uh, Western countries, it is mostly about cultural issues of immigration, national identity, uh, uh, European integration. So things have changed in terms of what defines or what gives their meaning to the notions of left and right. So That's the first point, I think, which is very important. Um, the second thing is that if we think about uh, left and right, we have to um, distinguish between parties and voters. Uh, voters in France, they still very much identify with the left and right. I mean, very few of them um, refuse to place themselves on the left-right scale. When we ask in our surveys, do you see yourself as left or right? The vast majority of French people um, would answer the question and they still have this sort of um, uh, political affiliation or uh, identification. So left and right still makes sense to most people in France. What makes less uh, sense now is whether parties are left or right. And uh, French voters, they have more difficulties looking at parties and saying that party is left or that party is right, because over the years, um, we know that uh, mainstream parties have converged towards the center in many countries in France, like the rest of European countries. And therefore, in terms of their policies, uh, the differences have become thinner between the left and the right. So voters, they, they don't see those differences that much anymore. And in France, especially, we've had two other uh, phenomena which I think have accentuated uh, this uh, waning of the left-right differentiation. The first, of course, is Emmanuel Macron himself, because he's built his uh, whole political enterprise on uh, bringing together the left and the right, saying we can be both left and right. And uh, we still have to uh, remember also that the Front National, the far right, has been competing uh, for many years on this notion of neither left nor right. And the far right in France has also tried to uh, Convince voters that the left and the right, they didn't mean much anymore and that there were other cleavages in French politics. As you know, Marine Le Pen, the leader of the far right, has been publicizing this cleavage between the nationalists versus the globalists, the people who are in favor of internationalization and the people who want to defend the national interest and identity of France. So in that sense, I would say both Macron and Le Pen have weakened the, uh, the the classic, the traditional left-right divide in France.
1: So what about people who voted for Macron in 2017 and who say that they will do so now? Do they still think of themselves, some of them on the left, um, and still then would vote for him?
2: Yes, clearly, um, that's the interesting thing about the uh, people who vote for Macron. They still see themselves as belonging to either the left or right. And actually, when we look in surveys at the the Macron uh, electorate or its electoral basis, we see it is uh, still very heterogeneous. It does bring together people from the left and right. And actually, um, surveys show that those voters who gather together um, around Macron, they still have sometimes different views about issues, such as immigration or social justice they're not all the same but they they get together and usually they share similar uh, beliefs or attitudes towards European integration that's something that brings together people who vote for Macron but yes they don't um, uh, forget about their previous political affiliations they still see themselves as left or right even though they all vote for the same candidate.
1: Okay, so we've heard from Gilles Levaldi about where Macron and his Le Republique en marche party fit into the political spectrum in France, and about what the people who vote for him appear to want and believe in. But what has Macron actually done while he's been in power? To help unpack that question, I called up another academic who's just co-authored a book on this very subject.
4: uh, Anne-Cécile Douillet Douillet is a
1: professor of political science at the University of Lille in France, where she's also a member of a research centre called CERAPS. Along with three of her colleagues, Julien Frotel, Bernard Deleuze and Rémy Lefebvre, she's edited a new book which assesses Macron's presidency from lots of different angles. I spoke to Anne-Cécile in French, and so we voiced over her answers. I asked where she and her colleagues stand on this question of how Macron has changed the French political system.
5: This question of how the French political system changes is an important one for all presidents of the republic, but perhaps even more so for Emmanuel Macron. Because even if the rhetoric of change, of rupture, is an extremely classic one in politics, Emmanuel Macron really emphasised it because it's what he'd promised. Revolution was the title of a book he'd published in 2016, the year before he was elected. He had said he wanted to disrupt things, to call into question on quite a profound level the political system, to overcome the left-right divide.
1: Anne-Cécile says the assessment of all the research in her new book is that there have only been relatively limited changes to the French political system during Macron's presidency.
5: In any case, we're far from a revolution.
1: She gave me a few examples, and she started with political institutions.
5: There haven't been major reforms from this point of view. The constitution hasn't been revised, and there isn't a programme for how to do so. Institutions haven't been modified, even though Emmanuel Macron arrived with this idea to give a new role to Parliament constitutional reform was launched in 2018, but it was interrupted and not restarted.
1: She says there have been some innovative initiatives, for example, in participative democracy, particularly around the Gilets Jaunes or the Yellow Vest movement.
2: and clouds of smoke
4: billowed from the heart of Paris as thousands took to the streets in anti-government protests that at times turned viral. This was a protest
1: movement that began in November 2018 and spread across France, calling for political and economic reform.
5: For example, first with the big national debate following the Gilets jaunes movement, or again with the Citizens' Convention on the Climate. The convention, citizens were chosen at random and then brought together for a number of weeks to debate ideas on how to reverse climate change and think about the energy transition.
1: But Anne-Cécile says that none of these initiatives were revolutionary. In fact, they were more of a letdown. And because he announced big plans, people have felt very disappointed too,
5: particularly around the Citizens' Convention on the Climate. Emmanuel Macron had announced that he'd take up the ideas without filtering them, that they'd be immediately translated into decrees, laws, referendums. But none of that happened. Instead, a couple of provisions relating to the climate transition were passed, but through the regular institutional channels.
1: When Macron was elected, Anne-Cécile says there was an expectation that his victory would dramatically change the French party political system.
5: Emmanuel Macron came to power without the support of one of France's long-established political parties. But instead, he was backed by a new movement, La République En Marche, It's true that this movement still exists today and that the older political parties, in particular the Socialist Party or the Republicans, have been weakened in terms of their activist base, in terms of voting intentions in the presidential election or in terms of their results in the European elections. So from this point of view, the political landscape has undoubtedly been redrawn. But it's not quite as straightforward as that either.
1: She points at what's been happening in local and regional elections during the five years of Macron's presidency, the old political system has more or less held its ground.
5: The République En Marche didn't win any major mayoral races. They didn't get impressive numbers in those local elections. On the other hand, a number of mayors or regional council presidents from the socialist and republican parties have stayed in office. And they've seen rather good results in these local elections. So yes, the political landscape has shifted, but it's not been completely upended.
1: A few months after Macron was elected president, his party, La République en Marche, swept to victory in France's legislative elections. They won 308 of the 577 seats in the National Assembly, the directly elected chamber of the French parliament. A coalition with the centre-right Modem party took that to 350 MPs. And many of this intake of MPs were completely new to politics. In fact, 72% of the MPs elected in 2017 had not been MPs before, compared to around a third in the previous parliament.
5: What's specific about this five-year term is that among the MPs from La République En Marche elected in 2017, a fairly large proportion, almost 30%, were new to politics. Not only had they never been an MP before, but they'd never been active in politics. They'd never had a political mandate, or even been involved in a union movement or something like that. So in a way, that's also contributed to the executive branch taking on more prominence than the parliament. Because we have people who don't really have the capacity, in the sense that they don't have the resources or the knowledge of the institutional systems, that would allow them to hold their own against a strong executive branch.
1: If you don't know the ropes, and very few people around you do either, it's harder to stand up for yourself and make your presence felt. So I asked Anne-Cécile if this influx of MPs new to politics had sparked a renewal of the French political elite. She said that yes, in one sense it had, because of the sheer number of new faces, but it's nuanced.
5: D'une part... On the one hand, because the new MPs have been somewhat pushed to the side, they've not been given the most important positions or been put forward to defend proposed new laws. So they've played a kind of secondary role. Another reason why this renewal of the elites is somewhat nuanced is that there hasn't been any challenge to the over-representation of the upper classes in the National Assembly. It's true that there is still the same proportion of managers and highly skilled professionals.
1: We've been hearing from Anne-Cécile here about what Macron has been doing to the French political system and its institutions. But what effect has that had on trust in French politics during Macron's presidency? I asked Gilles Levaldi that question.
2: Well, it's been a complicated story over the past five years, as you may imagine, because of all the crises that we've been through in France. Let's first say that um, political trust in France has always been very low. I mean, there's, there's not, nothing peculiar to Macron or his presidency. And this, what we call the crisis of political representation, has been going on for many, many years in France. Now, if we uh, think about the past five years, Clearly, there have been two important moments. The first one was the Yellow Vest movement. And uh, during that, that uh, movement, clearly, trust was very low, particularly in national institutions. And of course, uh, Macron's popularity was down. Um, but then again, we've had uh, the pandemic. And during the pandemic, like in most other countries, what we've seen is a sort of um, rally around the flag effect with French people rallying behind uh, behind Macron. And most importantly, we've seen an increase in trust and especially trust in national institutions that protect the people, such as hospitals, social security, uh, public companies, the public sector. So in that sense, if we look at uh, trends in political trust over the five years of Macron's presidency, it's not linear. What we see is uh, ups and downs. And clearly, there was, was a big down uh, during the, um, the Yellow Vest movement. But then trust increased again during the pandemic.
1: So we're, are we still riding that wave of an increased level of trust if we're looking at between 2017 and now?
2: Well, I will tell you that in a few months time, because now, of course, the the next crisis is the Ukraine war because of the war and also because we have this election. And we know that in general, during election uh, periods, political trust tends to rise. So for those two reasons, we expect that in the next wave of a survey, which will take place in April, just after the elections, we expect to see uh, rising levels of political trust across all actors because again uh, we know that international crises like the Russian invasion they, they create a lot of anxiety and that people usually uh, rally around the uh, the commander in chief during those very difficult times. having said that still uh, the levels are very low France is a structurally uh, very distrustful of politics in general, especially national politics. And and those waves we've described, they they didn't change that tremendously. It's still a very low level of trust uh, overall.
1: There's obviously been quite a big anti-vaccination, anti-vax movement in France, who've been very vocal, gone out to the streets, protested against vaccination passes, um, health passes. Has that come through in your surveys as to you know there is a proportion of the population who have become more entrenched in their their distrust
2: oh yeah but well, what we've seen in the survey that there is a very very strong relationship between political trust and attitudes towards vaccines uh, health passes whatsoever it's really the people who don't trust the government that were against uh, vaccines uh, or health passes to, uh, to begin with
1: Semaines, notre pays for fait some face weeks
2: à la now, our country has been facing the spread of a virus.
1: The pandemic gave Macron a chance to be front and centre of the national narrative, to be omnipresent, and he seized it. Here's Anne-Cécile Duhé again.
5: He has kept for himself the slightly solemn televised speeches defining the government's main policies, and then he's kind of left logistics and stewardship to his prime ministers.
1: Just to explain here, in France the president chooses their prime minister who leads the cabinet and is in charge of legislation and the business of parliament. Macron has had two prime ministers, both from the centre-right of French politics. The first, Édouard Philippe, was replaced by the current prime minister, Jean Castex, in July
5: 2020. During the health crisis, things were quite staged and the decision-making process became quite personalised. Macron started to present the government's decisions as his own. He had those around him say how aware he was of the latest epidemiological developments He even had himself called the best epidemiologist in France by his entourage and the press. So he was shaping his image as one of a president who is completely in control. And while, of course, the decision-making methods weren't completely personalised and he wasn't the only one analysing the situation, this did also result in his sidelining existing institutions and instead creating his own, the Scientific Council being one of them. It was a way of saying, I choose with whom I decide.
1: For Anne-Cécile, this personalization of political power in the presidency isn't actually new to Emmanuel Macron. It's a characteristic of the Fifth Republic in France. That's the political system that's been in place since the late 1950s.
5: So we're still in a presidential system, which means that institutionally, the president of the republic plays an important role. And the media ecosystem accords great importance to presidential elections, which means that In any case, French presidents get a lot of attention. They're relentlessly covered by the media. People are very interested in what they do, including in their personality and their private life.
1: Nicolas Sarkozy, the centre-right president between 2007 and 2012, was dubbed the hyper-president, the hyper-president, because of his omnipresence. But Sarkozy's successor, the socialist François Hollande, was a bit of a contrast and wanted to define himself as more normal. Hollande actually chose not to stand for a second term in 2017, which is when Macron was elected.
5: So Emmanuel Macron wanted to position himself as a president who took up a lot of political space. He used the adjective Jupiterian, by which he meant that, to his mind, a president must be like the Roman god Jupiter. But in saying that, in a way, he's defining himself as a president that has to keep his distance. You know, Jupiter is up on Mount Olympus. So yes, he's interested in running the
1: country, but with a certain distance, without necessarily taking care of absolutely
4: everything.
1: Macron's presidency has been marked by two main events, the Gilets jaunes protests, followed by the pandemic. But apart from all this, what's actually changed in the way France works under Macron? What will historians of the future, looking back on these past five years, pick out as his key reforms? When I asked Anne-Cécile this question, she told me there have been lots of different reforms, but for her, it's the economic ones that have stood out.
5: So I think there have been a whole set of economic reforms that do form something of a system. And they go largely in the same direction and they tend to favour a policy of supply, which means reducing taxation on companies, relaxing employment regulations. So there were several reforms in this direction quite early on in this five-year time, which to my mind do seem quite emblematic of Emmanuel Macron's presidency. For example, the work orders which were adopted in 2018 and which somewhat eased the procedures for dismissals and termination of employment contracts. Another big set of reforms were
1: to the tax system.
5: There was also the replacement of a wealth tax called the ISF, L'Impôt de Solidarité sur la Fortune, which was replaced with a tax on real estate wealth. This was also quite emblematic. The idea was to eliminate taxation on the wealthiest people, at least for everything that is productive, and only tax fixed assets like property. This was in order to free up taxation on everything that is likely to produce wealth.
1: On top of this, a 30% flat tax on investment income was introduced, which was a change because before it had increased depending on how wealthy someone was. Now it's the same for everyone. For those out of work, unemployment benefits were made less generous
5: too.
4: And
1: when we see the way
5: Emmanuel Macron presents himself now in his
1: letters to the French people for the next five-year time, he insists
5: on the fact that what is important to him is to lower the tax burden, to lower income taxes and to promote work. And so it's true that this has resulted in a certain number of reforms going in this direction.
1: But at the same time, Macron failed to push through some other big reforms, most notably reforms to France's pension system that brought thousands onto the streets in protest. hit the streets in another day of strikes and protests against President Emmanuel Macron's proposed pension reform. Alors,
5: la fameuse... So the infamous pension reform, it's true that it was launched and it did also cause major protests, but I think it was more the health crisis than the protests that led to its suspension. Officially, it's never been abandoned, just put on hold. Nonetheless, it is a reform which did not succeed.
1: Let's end where we began, on this left-right question in France. I asked Gilles Leverdi for his prognosis on where French politics will go from here. At the start, you said the main point that you would assess from Macron's presidency was this polarisation Um, If Macron does win a second term, which is what the polls suggest will happen, what do you expect to happen? Do you you think France will become even more polarised?
2: Yeah, well, clearly, it will be a very difficult uh, second term for Macron. Um, There is no doubt about that, because um, at the moment, the reason why is about probably to get reelected is because of the succession of those two main crises, the, the pandemic first and, and now the war in Ukraine, which is sort of giving him a, a decisive boost in, in uh, voting intentions and in the polls. So in that sense, I would say that the problem for Macron will be to find some legitimacy uh, after the election, and especially because he's announcing extremely unpopular Uh, reforms and policies think of uh, his um, proposal to uh, change uh, retirement age and uh, push it to 65, which is extremely unpopular in France. So I would say for him to have a majority uh, in the National Assembly after the election and to push such a uh, highly um, inflammable (laughs) policy reform would be extremely difficult.
1: Just to clarify, it's currently
2: 62? 62, 62, yeah. And he wants to push it uh, to 65, which okay. is the uh, proposal which has been endorsed only by the mainstream right. It's very, uh, very conservative. It's extremely unpopular. So in that sense, I think uh, it will be very, very uh, hard and very difficult for Macron after the election because he will have to first um, make sure he can um, achieve a majority a comfortable majority in the National Assembly. And then again, and I'm going back now to your question about polarization, what we see so far is that the two main uh, parties of the left and right, the Socialist Party to the left and the Republicans to the right, they might um, go through those elections and uh, end up in tatter, because both are extremely, extremely weak at the moment. So if that is confirmed by the, uh, the first round results, it is very likely that um, in the, the years to come, it will be Macron against radical parties again. It will be Macron against Marine Le Pen to the right or to the far right. And probably to the left, what we see at the moment is that Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the leader of the France Insoumise, who is a radical left party, Uh, is taking over uh, leadership uh, on the left.
1: Mm. Well, thank you so much, Jules, for your insights and explaining that all to our listeners. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. If you do read French, I strongly urge you to follow how our French colleagues are covering the French election. Stay tuned. Now, for our next story, we're going to talk about bees. I'm a bit scared of bees, Dan, but I do really like honey.
0: That's a very reasonable perspective here, and really gets at the nuanced relationship between bees and people. Bees are kind of all over culture today. And some researchers went looking to see how long that history of a human-bee relationship goes back. It turns out bees and people have been, if not friends, at least interacting with each other for a very, very long time. I called up one of the researchers based in Melbourne, Australia, who was looking at this long love affair with bees.
3: My name's Adrian Dyer. I'm an associate professor at RMIT University. And my primary research field is looking at insect vision and how I use that to solve complex problems. But as part of that, we, uh, our group fell in love with bees, and we look at bees and how they fit into human culture.
0: How would you describe yourself? Are you a bee art historian?
3: Well, I started as a photographer, actually. And then uh, when I did uh, scientific photography at uh, RMIT, I mean, I was working as a professional at Monash University, Someone asked me to take some ultraviolet photographs of flowers. And here you're seeing the uh, using a very specialized equipment to see patterns in flowers. And this just amazed me. And then I did a doctorate on how bee vision has shaped flower coloration around the world. And it just intrigued me. So I fell in love with bees and vision. And 20 years later, anything to do with bees, I kind of uh, have a bit to do with.
0: Well, all right, so you've just published some interesting work on kind of the history of bees throughout culture. Um, I guess let's start there. So what is this new study you just published? Uh, can you just give us an overview of what you were trying to explore?
3: Yes, because we published a bit on the sensory perception of bees and flower evolution, uh, men started to get asked a lot of questions and aware of a lot of media uh, reports about bees and bee losses, etc. And we saw, wow, it's incredible human interest in this topic at the moment and we wanted to understand is that something just because of social media at the moment or is it something more deep about our relationship with bees so to get an insight that, we looked at artwork all around the world and indeed going back 8,000 years to cave art uh, incorporating bees and we found that no it's not just a current thing people have had a long relationship for
0: bees for a long time where did you start? Did you, you know, where, where were you looking for in, throughout history? You first start
3: with the academic literature, and then you diverge into artworks, looking at records of exhibitions. The oldest uh, art representation we found was a, a person climbing a ladder in the Spider Caves in Spain, about 8,000 BCE and they're ascending the ladder to collect honey from a a beehive. The First Nations songlines in Australia are suggestive of similar relationships. So then we had to go out and look at how this has been documented and what some of the songs say, and there was frequent references to interacting with bees over thousands of years. So you have to just develop a richer understanding of how different communities have related to bees. Then we jump forward to probably Egyptian culture. So the pharaohs have records of interacting with bees. The name of the king of Upper and Lower Egypt incorporated the representation of a hieroglyphic of a bee. Uh, the introduction of the first coins in the world, certainly the first coins in Europe, often used uh, a homage to important animals like a turtle. And one of the first coins introduced had bees on it. So we see it as probably being very important to those societies.
0: What were the representations of bees in Central and South America? In South
3: America, we were able to find evidence of bee drums, if you like. So these are artifacts which were used to house bees, and they look basically like a a drum. And so this dated back to about 2,000 years. A colleague in China was actually able to find similar types of bee drums independently. These had to be independent. And actually the people used them as drums and made music to celebrate bees. And, of course, South America's huge collection of countries with different cultures. Pre-Columbian times, Mayan Indians had very strong relationships with stingless bees. So what we often think of as a bee, a honeybee, you'll see a picture of a honeybee as you buy some honey in the supermarket, Uh, there are many, many bee species in the world. And pre-Columbus, the main source of food for Indigenous people in South America was from uh, stingless bees, And here we
0: saw evidence they had them in their houses. And the stingless bees are like gorgeous. They're like iridescent and shiny colors and stuff. So you're saying that man people would have like stingless bees living in their house kind of thing and like set up little places for them? Yes,
3: yes, for sure. And that's they also having these drum type uh, devices for for housing the bees. And this persists to the day. So to the day, uh, we have photographs in the paper we published. Of people uh, in contemporary times, so around 2020, still housing bees in their house to both collect uh, a honey substance, but also just because they like having them there, it makes them feel good. We also see evidence of uh, bee gods. So in Mayan culture, there were several gods which had direct relationships to bees. <laughs>
0: Why do you think there was this remarkably universal fascination with bees?
3: Yeah, so the position we put in our our research paper, one was uh, the very famous primate researcher, Jane Goodall. She had shown that in indigenous people around the world, the use of sticks and stones to collect honey was reasonably common and raised a hypothesis that actually collecting honey may have been a reason why we ate, we survived better because it's good nutrition, but we also develop a more sophisticated brain for manipulating tools and doing things. And then we showed that there's direct evidence that when we have something like sweet water, so sucrose, tasting something sweet forms that positive relationship that actually might benefit your body Then your family does better, then your culture, your children, your grandchildren start to really celebrate this. You're going, hey, this is a really good relationship. I taste (laughs) it, I like it,
0: and we're all really healthy. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, it reminds me of a bit of almost uh, like a very natural relationship, you know, almost how like ancient humans worked with dogs and get all these benefits. Is it kind of that sort of like broad scale level to a certain extent?
3: Yes, I think so. And actually, one of the really interesting pieces of evidence we saw to support that came from China. So pre Tang Dynasty, we don't see a lot of representations of bees. So China has the longest uh, written record of human interactions with our environment. And most of those before Tang Dynasty are all representing plants and nature, flowers, but almost nothing to do with bees. Or if there is, it was in a negative sense of aversion. So being aware that bees sting. During the Tang dynasty, we start to see bees being used more in agriculture and a better appreciation of the honey. And of course, uh, honey and a variety of natural produce are very important in Chinese medicine. So, then we see a change in the artwork that bees are reflected in a positive sense. So how the community attitude changes depends on what benefit we see to ourselves.
0: Sure. So, you know, as soon as they kind of realized, well, wow, bees are wonderful, the whole historical attitude shifted. So uh, you've probably spent more time thinking about bees and watching bees and learning about bees than most people. What have you learned about bees and what are kind of some of the traits that we might all benefit by being a little more like a bee?
3: Yeah, we've certainly got amazing ability to learn. And actually, one of the things we've published in the last couple of years is evidence that bees don't learn in a consistent way. There's a lot of diversity. Even honeybees of the same colony have different profiles in how they learn. And so when we look at ourselves as humans, we quite often have this debate Uh, Are people the same? Are they different? How should we set up education processes? And when we see in a very or relatively simple animal they have diversity, it helps us understand ourselves that we have diversity. We have to respect how different people have different ways of learning and different ways of behaving. It's something deep in our biology.
0: Mm. Uh, Well, Adrian, thank you so much for sharing the time here. It's been really, really fun. Uh, Anything else you want to bring up before we kind of sign off here?
3: Plant more flowers and look after the bees, all (laughs) of them. Lovely to talk to you.
0: That was Adrian Dyer at RMIT University in Australia. If you want to see some photos and drawings of what we talked about, check out a story he wrote with a few colleagues for the conversation about his new research. We'll put a link to that in the show
1: notes. Elsewhere on The Conversation this week, we've been continuing to cover the war in Ukraine and particularly the cultural heritage that's at risk from the Russian invasion. Here's Claudia Lorenzo at The Conversation in Madrid with some highlights.
6: I am Claudia Lorenzo and I'm the arts and culture editor for The Conversation Spain, based in Madrid. The two stories I'm talking about today are related to Ukraine and a couple of cities whose names we're hearing a lot in the last days. The first one, Written by Jorge La Torre Izquierdo from Rey Juan Carlos University is titled Film and War Through the Time in Odessa. It is true that one of the most famous scenes in the history of cinema is the sequence in Battleship Potemkin, Einstein's film from 1925, located on the Odessa steps, where a crowd of unarmed civilians are shot and killed by an army of Cossacks. In his article, Professor Latorre talks about film industry in Ukraine, how Odessa was considered the Ukrainian Hollywood during the 30s, and what's the story of the steps made famous by that film. The second story is written by Anna R. Calero-Valera from Valencia's University. She analyzes a novel called She Came from Mariupol by Natasha Woodin. In the novel, the author talks about her mother's story, She was born in Mariupol and suffered the Ukrainian Great Famine in the 30s and afterwards forced labour in Germany during World War II. Prof. Calero Valera clarifies the context in both cases and, as the novelist did, uses it to explain this woman's attitudes towards life and also towards motherhood. That's all from Spain. Thanks so much for listening and goodbye.
1: That's it for this week. Thank you to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode. A special thanks to Dale Burning Sauer for voicing over Anne-Cécile's answers in our French election story. And thanks to the conversation editors Claire Chakravarti, Fabrice Rousselou, Patrick Lenton and Stephen Kahn. And to Alice Mason for our social media promotion.
0: Check out the Twitter at TC underscore audio, Instagram at theconversation.com or email us podcast at theconversation.com. You can, of course, sign up for our free daily email. It's a good one. Just click the link in the show notes. If you're enjoying The Conversation Weekly, please leave a rating or review wherever podcast apps allow you.
1: The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend Marawani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sal.
0: I am Dan Marino. Thank you for listening.